Traveler, you are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, friends. My name is Chris Marchand, the sometimes co-host of this podcast. Often you find me behind the scenes, editing, putting together music, all that sort of thing. Today's episode features my conversation with Ross Lawhead. Ross is an author and a comic book artist. You can find him at rosslawhead.com. And as he mentions, he's in the, in the process of editing a comic book series called The Death of God Man, which Stephen is playing some part in. So be on the lookout for that. I don't quite know how available that is yet, but be on the watch for that. He's also the author of a, of a science fiction fantasy trilogy called The Ancient Earth Trilogy, which you can find anywhere that you purchase books. Finally, he once co-hosted a podcast called Fiction Hack, which you can still find on SoundCloud. Our conversation today is about the role that narrative plays within our culture. What do we say about ourselves based on the stories that we tell. And in order to do that, Ross explains this concept known as the myth of redemptive violence and the role that it plays in the way we tell our stories and how we operate and move about in the world. So, guess what? Even a Marvel film, actually not even, especially a Marvel film, DC films, Star Wars, pretty much any story, we can look at it and apply it to our politics, to the way that we live in the world. But there's another question to be asked, which is, how can we tell better stories? And specifically, how can followers of Jesus learn how to tell a better story? So we get into that today. I want to let you all know that there is an extra episode being put up on our Patreon account for those of you that are Patreon subscribers. So be on the lookout for that. It is a conversation that specifically goes into uh, different filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, the Coen brothers, and others. So if your uh, curiosity was piqued by this conversation, please subscribe to Patreon, or if you're already a Patreon subscriber, the episode will soon be there waiting for you. So thanks to Ross. Check out rosslawhead.com. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. One of the things that I want to acknowledge right up front is that today, this is, this is a conversation between fellow artists, writers, whatever we want to call ourselves. And I think what's a little bit uh, self-deprecating to acknowledge is that we're we're not necessarily the activists. <laughs> we are um, our our role is a little bit more con- contemplative. We're stuck away in our rooms creating something. Um, how do you approach writing in the sense of, or uh, of creating a work in the sense of uh, do you ever associate any amount of guilt? Like I'm not I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just the the, the artist, uh, you know, working away at my craft. Whereas the activists, the people that are out there in the world, they're the important ones. How do you how do you approach that? Yeah, uh, that that is a real thing. <laughs> it's uh, you're the first person I've had uh, actually acknowledge that and ask about that. It feels, um, especially kind of in a societal context, like a luxury. Um, like I, I'm the person who gets to just kind of live off the work of others and throw out an idea every once in a while that someone might like. And I don't really have an answer <laughs> except for myself, which is that this is what I feel called to do. And if we're talking about kind of uh, callings and vocations as Christians, then we don't really need to have the large answer solution to how we fit into the grand scheme of things. We just have to follow orders, essentially. Uh, in that sense, I, that's how I comfort myself. Um, I mean, in, in another way, we are, I do believe that we are all called to personally be active where we are. So just because I say, well, I'm a writer, that doesn't mean that that's all I do. I will try to help out locally in society and that kind of stuff. And you know, if, you know, it's just kind of working, volunteering at the homeless shelter. You know, I try to do uh, stuff like that where I am. Uh, sometimes that's impossible. Here in Texas and Dallas, uh, it's just nothing set up like that, um, essentially. Uh, so it, it looks different in different places. Um, but to get back to your main question, there's a, 
another 10 episodes when you talked about um, uh, profits and what that actually is. Uh, it was in the context of um, predicting the election results um, and the fallout from that. And Stephen kind of did a look, did a short study on, well, what is a profit really? And it's not about predicting the future. It is about kind of being outside of society and talking into it. And I, that struck me. I felt like there is, um, there's very much an aspect of that uh, to all art is that you are taking a different sort of look at what's going on than being active. So a part of being an artist by necessity is to be outside of society or to have a different kind of perspective on it. And really, if you know many artists yourself, um, they are the ones that don't really fit in. <laughs> they, they kind of have difficulty falling in line with everybody else. And I, there's a guy I know who um, used to organize uh, arts conferences um, at a place that my parents used to go to. And I, I went to a bunch of these art conferences and it was a nightmare <laughs> trying to get all these artists to uh, show up to the meetings on time, to the worship services, even to meals, you know. This, this was a conference center actually in the Austrian Alps. And so they would do conferences all year round. And then they would do one arts conference. And it was great to see, you know, the academics coming in from you know, Eastern Europe or wherever they come from. They all, you know, arrive on time. They sit down in their chairs. They listen respectfully. They answer questions. They ask questions when the questions are asked for. But then you, you have the artists come in for the same sort of setup. And, you know, they're sitting on the floors. They're sitting in the windows. They're sitting almost anywhere but the chairs themselves. They're interrupting. They're asking questions. They're coming and going and leaving. You know, they got shoes on. They got not got shoes on. So people get frustrated with artists by saying, like, you know, why can't you just be normal almost? And that's, that's something that every artist kind of gets confronted with. It's like, well, why don't you just get a job? Why don't you just, you know, settle down? Why don't you just do this, this, and that? Maybe for some people it's a lifestyle of choice, but really it's just that there's something inside an artist that has that outside look on things. And so just the normal day-to-day -day doesn't make sense on a level. And that's kind of what a lot of artists is trying to figure out. It's like, well, what is, what is life? What is love? What is the point of everything? So, and then you've got, you know, different gradations of artists, you know, the, the painters are different to the actors are different to the writers are different to uh, the poets and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, being a writer, a novelist is kind of more being a little bit normal in that you can kind of blend into the crowd a little bit. You are sitting in a chair, but it's usually the chair at the back and uh, you're just kind of taking notes and a notebook and stuff. So I don't know. That's a long answer to, to the question. But um, what I, what I hear you saying is, is they don't want us running the homeless shelter anyway. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we, we'd, uh, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, but yeah, that explains a lot of uh, the conversations I've had at the homeless shelter about how to do things. But, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's a both end. But so, yeah, it, it's, I mean, you, there is that aspect of the prophetic, but you can look at it as a being a kind of a secular prophet, you know, um, not that one is, you know, inside the, the court, you know, and, and, you know, telling truth to power in the way that it wants to, but, you know, just one that's kind of commenting generally on things and how they're going. So I don't know if that helps. It does help. And I think it's, it's, and what you're offering is an open-ended challenge in a way, and also maybe a bit of an encouragement. Like if you do, if you are an artist type, then embrace it, uh, embrace the role of all that that role might require, <laughs> even if it means just being a bit of the odd one out, kind of the mad fool of our village. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you can look at say, well, this is what the artist is in society. You can also say, well, look, this is what the artist aspect is in me as well. I think everyone should kind of be creative in their own lives. And uh, that's not to say you should, you know, everyone should quit their job and, you know, go, you know, herd sheep and write poetry. But it's to say that you, you should, you know, find a way to be creative and think creatively in your own job, in your own, you know, households, in your own society. Because, uh, yeah, who knows what might come of it? Well, so you know, uh, just segueing into that, I'm, I'm curious, what are you currently working on? What do the next few years look like for you? And, and feel free to loop back around once we really get into understanding narratives and, and uh, myth and all of that. But I'm just curious, what, what's going on in your own artistic life right now? Yeah, well, for novelists, it's kind of like, uh, um, grand apocalypse. Uh, the, the publishing industry has been kind of on the back foot, I'd say for the last 20 years or so. And, uh, things are just kind of degraded since then. It's very hard for, uh, writers now to make a, a firm living from 
uh, doing their writing. And even the ones who have in the past are finding um, a real kind of cut in uh, revenues and stuff. It's it's just kind of in a practical level, it's just kind of less feasible. On the other hand, there are new avenues opening up for how to present your your craft, as it were. And so I think all of us are just trying to find a, a new footing in the last uh, five years. So it's kind of come to a head. I mean, for what that means for me is that you know I've been writing ever since my uh, last fantasy trilogy came out. And I've had several books that just kind of aren't really finding their market or their, their publisher. I, I mean, I'm not hugely depressed about that. The wheel turns um, and, you know, there there's times where publishers don't want to hear new voices. There are times publishers do want to hear new voices. So there's kind of a natural rhythm to the, the industry in that respect. At the same time, yeah, the digital platform, it took it takes writers a long time to adjust to anything, the publishing industry especially. Um, but yeah, now now writers are doing um, you know, Kickstarter projects and uh, Patreon, of course, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of doing a mix. I'm pursuing both avenues. So I, I've still got books that I'm writing and sending out to my agents and to publishers. Um, but I, I have started a new project, uh, which is always been a passion project. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'll tell you why passion is funny in a second. But it's always been a passion project of mine, which is graphic novel, uh, which I'm serializing online called The Death of God Man. And it actually has uh, come from an idea that Stephen and I share co-creation uh, with, which is imagining uh, Jesus Christ as a modern day superhero. Um, so he has the powers of, you know, flight, slash ascension and uh you know he has his divine hearing and all sorts of uh, fun little gimmicks and it's just really kind of a it's kind of a mashup uh in that sense uh and to try to draw i guess not distinct but attention to kind of uh, moral kind of disconnects in what we expect a hero to be um which is you know always very rich ground when you talk about uh you know christian theology what do we expect hero and salvation to be it's the sort of thing where it's easier just to kind of show somebody what it is than to explain it uh but the the actual larger project the death of god man is um saying well okay you know we've had like stuff like the death of superman you know superheroes are always dying so we have uh god man dying and then uh descending into the dante's inferno style of hell where he does a kind of uh, liberation of hell going level by level in a sort of Bruce Lee style, uh, defeating the various demons and stuff. So it has become a mashup upon a mashup upon a mashup, and it's hugely fun and exciting to do. And uh, I wish I could spend more time on it because there are other projects, and um, I got little kids, and I'm moving country and stuff. So uh, it's slow going because of the fact that I'm doing it myself. I'm just putting it out on my own website um, at my own pace. Um, that does give me the freedom to go at my own speed. Um, so yeah, again, you know, I've got a kind of a Patreon supporters page uh, for people who want to uh, pitch in and help out with that. Otherwise it is going to be free to read. Um, and uh, eventually I'll probably do a Kickstarter for, uh, for publishing it as an actual graphic novel. Uh, where, where can they find this at? Yeah. So I've got a website, uh, rosslawhead.com. Um, so that will point you in the right direction. And, uh, yeah, then the Patreon will link to that as well. Uh, you can go to Patreon and just search Ross Lawhead as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can uh, participate that way. And there's, you know, little little incentives, of course, for, for all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah. Wonderful, so, wonderful. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time, uh, an interesting time, as they say. You know, there's that old Asian uh, uh, saying about may you live in interesting times. And people are saying, well, is that a, a blessing or a curse to live in interesting times? It's, it is just what it is. <laughs> so it's an interesting time now. There you go. So take us into what we're the the bulk of where we're going to focus today. Um, we're we're talking about this big concept known as the myth of redemptive violence, and and this this is something that maybe has been acknowledged in modern times. I mean, maybe you can take us into the development of this as an approach to story, but but this but the 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 understanding is that this has kind of always been with us. Like these, these, this way of telling stories is so ancient, ancient as civilization itself. So take us into it. How do you, how do you begin talking to people about this kind of uh, concept? Yeah. Well, I mean, violence in media is often something that's just, 
that's kind of pointed at, but not really discussed properly. Um, and even within academic circles, I don't see it being, I mean, I'm not in academic circles, but I don't see a lot of results from it. Um, but people, you know, do get worried, you know, when there's a mass shooting or something is like, oh, well, you know, there, there's violence in the media, there's violent video games, there's, you know, violence on TV, on the news and uh, in uh, movies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they don't really go much further than that. Um, practically what we see is, well, let's move the guns to a different part of Walmart than, you know, or move the video, the video games, you know, put them in a glass case or something as if that's, you know, actually addressing the, the issue at all. And, you know, people know that it's not. And in America, people don't want to change. So they don't. By discussing something, giving it a term to the myth of redemptive violence is trying to kind of slice up the pie a little bit and say, okay, well, look, we've got there's obvious violence in these games, but sometimes we like the violence. Uh, sometimes the violence tells us a little bit more about who we are. Sometimes it's excessive violence. You know, then people talk about, well, there's graphic violence, there's inferred violence, there's all this kind of stuff. I mean, you can put an 18 label on a movie, but, you know, like Silence of the Lambs movie, for instance, but the Silence of the Lambs book, anyone can buy that. You know, no one's stopping a 10-year-old from picking that book up. People are still just trying to digest it all and try to figure out, well, what's what's going on? Um, so, the, But the myth of redemptive violence uh, goes back to uh, a book called The Powers That Be by a theologian academic called Walter Wink. And he wrote this back in 1999. He, it's a kind of a summation of uh, a few of his works that he, he did in uh, academia uh, about the kind of powers and domini dominions of uh, w which was kind of the Semitic context um, that Jesus um, was working in when he was uh, you know, teaching and, and living and, and all that, and and you which which Stephen has has uh, spent a lot of time talking about uh, in the podcast, and he he also kind of breaks into violence as a narrative, basically, or as a way of understanding human history. Because he was an activist. Uh, he was brought over to um, South Africa to um, kind of work with nonviolent protesters uh, during apartheid. And so he, uh, he does have this kind of academic uh, side. He does have a very practical side. The disappointment of the book, The Powers That Be, is that it, it doesn't follow academic process. And so he'll say something about comic books or TV, and he'll also say, hey, I spent 30 minutes in a comic book store, and this is everything that I found out. Like, well, that's not really getting a handle on the, the medium itself. <laughs> so he does a few missteps. On the other hand, it's, it rings true. And by, by saying um, the myth of redemptive violence, it is to, to help to try to process uh, what, what exactly is going on in what we're reviewing. So yeah, let's let's dive into that a little bit. And uh, you and I were joking when we were setting this up that the first part of this is going to be called uh, "Everything is bad, bad, bad." The movies that you love are awful, um, and and so on. And so the uh, the, the first part is probably going to be yeah. a bit of a downer. Uh, but we're going to talk about alternatives to this kind of myth of redemptive violence, which is so prevalent. Yeah. So I, I think I'm curious about what, what the archetype is, right? It's like, so take us like, if only what we're talking about is what's a typical narrative structure and what this looks like. In a sense, it sounds like it's the punchline. If, 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 if the narrative were a joke, yeah. it's like, yeah, the punchline itself is, is, is tearing us apart as a, it's a cancer to us as a civilization. It's, it's, it's not good for us. Yeah. And, but well, you put your finger on it there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not a narrative structure. It's a narrative mechanism. So it's a little piece that fits into whatever narrative structure you want to create. And I mean, we can go you know deep into that on the other end as well. Uh, let's just say for the sake of argument that there are actually multiple narrative structures that you can create or use as a writer. Um, and this goes against the, anything that someone might've heard about the hero of a thousand faces and Joseph Campbell. Um, but for the sake of argument, let's just say that there are actually different stories you can, you can tell. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those different stories as well. But yeah, the myth of redemptive violence is it's all in the name. And so it is saying that violence will redeem uh, a situation or a, uh, conflict. Yeah, Wink actually kind of goes right back um, to kind of Mesopotamian and uh, I guess, you know, the Enuma Elish, um, you know, Babylonian myth cycle. Um, there's the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is kind of the first long sustained narrative in any language. So he's, he's literal when he says myth, saying that, you know, there is this uh, story of violence solving a situation. You can look at, uh, you know, fairy tales, like Grimm's fairy tales. People who, who love Grimm's will often say how, 
you know, they're, they're very much more bloody than you expect, uh, because they get cleaned up for cartoons and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's in there too. It's saying that, yeah, there's an evil witch in the forest and she's capturing kids. And the only way to deal with her is to kill her is to throw her in the oven and set fire to her. And then everything's happy. You can go back and, you know, live a fulfilled life and all that kind of thing. And really, I mean, the question is like, and this is what, you know, you, I've heard, you know, the, the other uh, podcasts in this series talk about is, you know, does violence actually work? Does it actually solve a situation? You know, have we ever had a war that ended all wars? You know, well, not really. Well, shouldn't, shouldn't there be a war that ends all wars if wars actually do work? It seems like we just get better at killing people and during all this conflict. By putting that over into a story and narrative context, it's kind of like saying, well, you know, our, is a story that shows you violence solving a situation is that is that true you know does that actually work is that a, an accurate model of you know depicting reality around you um which is what art you know has to interpret really we can give you know, lots of examples um i always point to the movie die hard you know the the only way that this situation ends is by killing enough bad guys. Any Western will, will do that as well. Most Westerns will do that as well. It's like, it's killing the right person. If you, you know, it's anything that says, if you chop off the head, the, the body will die and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Stephen brought this up as well. It was something I, sh- I, I mentioned to him that even in Die Hard, uh, violence has a healing quality with the Al Powell, the, the beat cop who John McClane is always talking to at the end well, throughout the movie, you find out that, you know, he's kind of a, a desk sergeant. Um, he just, you know, goes around on his, his roots every once in a while. But he's off of active duty because he killed a teenager, a, a, young, a kid who he saw in a dark alley and he shot him. And he was all torn up about this. And then at the end of the movie, uh, he has the opportunity to redeem himself uh, by shooting a bad guy and killing him. This is shown, the, the music swells and the camera pulls focus on him and he's got, a, you know, his face is, you know, firmly resolute and you realize that he's been made a whole person, a whole cop because he can kill people again. <laughs> yeah, on one hand, people always say, well, this is entertainment, you know, this is just, you know, this is just Hollywood. And on the other hand, uh, people take this in and, you know, story is there to kind of show us how to resolve conflicts, you know, how would we react in these situations and, Again, so it's kind of making sense of, of the world around you. And by saying that, well, yeah, if you, if you kill the bad guys, um, then everything's fine. And so, you know, when, when you have Hollywood or, you know, the, the main uh, engine of your society's history, you know, it's the, the way that it talks to itself about itself, uh, which is what, you know, story is kind of doing. You have, you know, so many movies in Hollywood saying, oh, yeah, if you kill all the bad guys, everything will be fine. And then, you know, you have politicians saying, hey, there's some bad guys over here. What should we all do about that? Well, you kill them. You don't have any other model to work from. Uh, You don't have a lexicon of describing, you know, what a bad guy is and how how that, how that, how another way, another way of imagining really uh, of what that could be. You know, that's another word that is used in the podcast a lot, you know, a Christian imagination. You know, we, we kind of grew up in the age of, uh, what, who was it? Was it Tipper Gore, um, the, the Al Gore's wife, the pearl clutching about violent video games, right? <laughs> you even mentioned it at the beginning uh, when, you were, when you were talking that in some ways, like, she's right. Like, she, you know, there, there, is, there is a problem with violent video games or whatever, whatever we want to point to. I think what's funny is the tension of just not simply reacting like, yes, let's get rid of violent video games and swearing and music and all of that. All of the things need to go away. At, at the same time, acknowledging, well, that's actually pointing to a much greater problem. Maybe my question is, is take me back to Walter Wink. I've not read it. What, what does he, where does he take us? Where does he want to go with this? Is he simply diagnosing the problem or does he, is he also giving us solutions? Okay. So uh, yeah, in the larger context of Walter Wink and this book, um, the, the key word is dominion and, uh, which is the same as domination. Um, a dominion is a power that's in control. So you can have powers, uh, and then you have the dominions. Those are the powers that actually are in control and you can look at it in a sp- purely spiritual aspect and say, well, this is a a real spiritual thing, or you can look at it metaphorically and say, well, this is a way of thinking about the problem. Um, And really both are are fine. Um, You're going to be doing the Lord's work either way. So you can look at, you know, like the finance industry basically as being a 
uh, power. Um, then you can look at you know, the United States nation as being another power, but one that has dominion over finance because that, you know, it makes decisions for that, that industry, but still people, you know, dedicate their lives to finance and to making money and, and helping that machine work. Um, so with, with Wink, he's identifying these powers. He's identifying the dominions. He's also identifying that, um, in the same way that humans are all at the same time, fallen, can be redeemed, and created by God, uh, we should see the dominions and powers as being able to be redeemed and also created by God for a purpose. Um, so he's not saying that these are all bad things that must be fought against. He's saying, look, you know, let's just kind of talk with nuance about some of these things. Now, he gets into the myth of redemptive violence because he is identifying, again, it, you know, the media is a, is a kind of a power with certain dominions over um, I think, uh, you know, the imagination of the United States, for instance, um, this is where he's going with it. Um, and he's just trying to figure out, well, look, what, what is basically going on with this? You know, is this, how can we redeem this? Uh, how can we, you know, tr treat this as created by God? How can we you know, also see this as something that's, that's fallen? And so um, he kind of points out, well, look, yeah, there is a lot of, he is pointing to violence as being um, the, the main culprit in, you know, it's, it's fallenness. Um, I think uh, it's also, I think we can try to use the, the language um, and cross apply it and say that actually um, violence is a problem. However, the, I think the overarching problem is the kind of the idea of domination um, because he goes on to say in his book that, you know, as Christians, we are not called to have dominion over our enemies, over each other. Um, we're, you know, we need to take Christ's example and lay our powers down. Um, and, uh, Stephen has, uh, often used the, um, Greek word, um, kenosis, uh, the, the emptying of, of yourself. We can talk about violence in video games and in, uh, media and stuff. I think we can also talk with more nuance about domination um, and using that as a way to solve situations. Let's, let's go back and kind of flesh out what we mean by kind of the myth of redemptive violence um, as kind of, um, and maybe some of our favorite movies, basically. <laughs> and uh, again, why, why those movies are bad. And I think you, we can also, we can know, okay, you've got the clear ones like Die Hard, which uh, clearly show a lot of killing um, and saying, well, okay, this is just fantasy violence. You know, this is, you know, kind of harmless in a, in a level because your brain can separate that out. And um, it's really just kind of a little bit of, of a release, you know, nobody watches it seriously and tries to apply it daily to their lives. But I think that another good one to look at um, is uh, Back to the Future. I remember talking to you about this uh, when we were kind of setting this up. Back to the Future is a really interesting one. It's what it's a use certificate. Anyone can watch it. It's universally loved. You know, people either love it or they just don't watch it. You wouldn't think that Back to the Future is a violent movie. You know, you wouldn't put it on a top shelf. You would watch it with your grandmother. You know, it's a safe bet for for a crowd. You know, I'm sure youth groups have have watched it as, as a group. But it all comes down to a single act of violence solving every problem, and in fact, uh, giving enormous bounty to the person who perpetrates that violence. So you've got George McFly, who's being bullied by uh, Biff Tannen, and uh, you've got Marty McFly goes, he, you know, he, he's living in a, you know, crappy little house, he's got a dinky little car, and he wants to have a, a bigger life. You know, his, his brother's in jail and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he goes back in the past to when his parents meet and he interrupts them meeting. So he's got to get his parents back together, all this kind of stuff. Um, throughout the course of the movie, uh, you know, stuff happens and uh, dot, dot, dot. Uh, the, the climax comes where uh, Biff has got Marty's dad, George McFly, in a kind of, I mean, well, he's got his arm twisted behind his back. You know, we can all remember he's in the car park. He's making fun of him. The uh, Lorraine, the, the woman who he, uh, is going to eventually marry uh, and you know have uh, children with uh, is there watching this humiliation of uh, George McFly in front of everybody. Yeah, George McFly gets so angry, his fist clenches, and he uh, pops uh, Biff in, in the face, and uh, Biff falls down. Everybody you know says hooray, and you know Lorraine falls in love with this uh, this new man who's presented himself to her uh, in the form of, of a violent uh, slayer of the dragon of, of Biff Tannen. Uh, and then Marty goes back into the future 
and everything's better. You know, his father has written a book and it's published and they have more money and he's, you know, someone bought him a car and Biff Tannen is now their servant, you know, not their overlord. And so you actually see through this one violent act of, you know, popping somebody in the kisser, how, how life is better for you, you know, how you can get what you want. You know, all you have to do is just hit a bully in the face and this will all happen for you. So, and this is the myth of redemptive violence. And this is what it says. And you know what? I mean, we can, we can actually discuss whether that's true or not. Maybe it is. Maybe you can get more money by being more violent. Famously, the actor who plays the dad, George McFly, didn't come back for the sequels. And he, he had a big problem with the, the ending. He didn't want the ending to be more money, uh, the, the reward, basically, to be a better life and more money. Um, I think he may have been okay with the, the whole violent part of it, but he didn't want... He thought that was a bit crass, just to kind of say, well, yeah, everything's better um, because you have more money. That can be a part of the discussion as well, but we can identify Back to the Future as perpetrating the, the myth of redemptive violence in popular culture. Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's interesting to think about dominion in the sense of what happens to Biff in the in the next future, like when they get back. I mean, for me, one of the biggest things, I'm, I'm thinking this of this as an author, is they open the box of books uh, that George McFly has just published. So now he's, he's a successful author, but it's interesting to note who hands him the box of books. It's Biff. He's like, Oh, Mr. McFly here, you know, it just arrived, you know, like, and so Biff has become this emasculated subservient. Like not only is he not the bully, but he's also, he's kind of a pathetic figure now. And so the dominion is actually a key part of the plot there in that sense. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. We can talk about genre as well. Genre is always a tricky one to, to talk about because, you know, there are genres that are clearly in the thrall of uh, the myth of redemptive violence. You know, most most action movies. Um, and it's interesting how they kind of shoehorn it in. I don't know why, but the movie, um, is it Blue Heat? It's got Martin Lawrence. Um, but, you know, there, there are so many movies, uh, especially the cop movies, where they have to show, they know they have to show the hero killing the bad guy. But they it's so hard to make that tasteful, you know, um, because at some point the hero has to assert his dominance over the situation, over the bad guys. But then at that point, once you have that dominion, it becomes unnecessary to kill anybody. <laughs> so they have to have some sort of excuse. This is where, and then this is where the jump scare comes in or, you know, the, the bad guy pulls out a gun that is hidden in his shoe. And so the hero has to kill the bad guy in order to stop him from, you know, being shot or shooting you know, the girl or something like that. It, it often feel, feels just kind of excessive and kind of a, uh, an anticlimax in a lot of ways. Although I think maybe that's just me. Uh, maybe some people you know, really want the bad guy to die and they get disappointed that he might not die. And so they do show him dying and then, ah, okay, relief. Everything is, is back to the way it should be. I mean, okay, this is where, you know, different mediums are able to discuss in different ways. Mo movies are so short, even a long movie will... If a long movie is written out, it would be a, a short story or novella, you know. A uh, rule for screenwriters is one page of text equals one minute of screen time. So a 90-page screenplay will equal an, a 90, an hour and a half movie, essentially. And so with that, there's kind of a lot of glossing going on, a lot of assumed knowledge going on uh, when it comes to story, and a lot of abridging uh, happening. So even... Uh, a, you know, a Star Wars or Lord of the Rings where you're world building, you know, you don't get the explanation of how everything came into existence uh, in the same way that you would need to if you're writing, uh, writing that out as a novel or a book. Um, so that's all to say is that you can get away with not connecting the dots. Uh, you can just kind of say, okay, well, there's bad guys in the world and they want to kill you without really kind of saying, well, why... Why, essentially? Um, why, why this stuff? Um, why does Hans Gruber you know, want this? Well, it's just money. Everybody wants money. Well, why does this person want this? Well, he's Hans Gruber's brother, and so, of course, he wants to kill John McClane. Um, so he must die because of that, um, because you can't kill the hero and all that kind of thing. So um, I, I think, yeah, movies are, are really able to kind of sidestep a lot of uh, questions. And then the problem becomes, well, people mainly watch movies and often little else, you know, um, I think, you know, there, there's nobody, nobody's called a nerd because they watch popular movies. <laughs> they're called a nerd because they read books or they, they're into comics or they, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and it's actually harder to, to show a myth of redemptive violence in books. I've noticed 
you, you'll get very few books that will say that violence is the answer to everything, just because when you start to try to pull tease that all apart and kind of say, well, what are we actually discussing here? You have to go into motivation and why the bad guy is a bad guy. And then you kind of find out, well, you know, maybe, you know, he's not a bad guy just because he wants money. Maybe something bad happened in his past. And then, well, he's sympathetic. And so all this kind of stuff, uh, once you actually try to connect the dots, it really you get a different picture for a start, um, not to mix metaphors, but yeah, it, it does start to fall apart a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, so j- quick little side note here. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, of something really, really recent. Uh, this year's best picture winner is, is Nomadland. And I've not seen it yet, but I've, <laughs> I've looked into it a little bit and I can already tell what that movie is about. It's about uh, humanity's search for meaning. And, and what's funny is those types of movies automatically get labeled, oh, that's just one of those art art house films or something like that. And because and people automatically dismiss it because what what they kind of innately realize is like, yeah, it's just a bunch of it's just about a bunch of people trying to figure their lives out. <laughs> Uh-huh, and, right. and they're yeah, like, yeah. you know, the, 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 <laughs> as if that's something frivolous. To exactly. Do. Yeah. Exactly. The end of the movie isn't like Francis McDormand realizes in order for her to realize her destiny, she had to take out the person who owned the trailer park that she was living in. Like, uh-huh. like you know, like that's not the, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. where that story goes. And and so it's interesting to make that parallel between films that aren't propagating the myth of redemptive violence they kind of get lumped in with like yeah difficult literature just a literature that forces us to ask the larger questions and and not play into those simple tropes and this is why it's so hard to talk about genre is because you run into these these little problems about well it's all about how do we define story and how do we section up story and you really can't uh, you you really can't um you can do it for marketing terms but for practical terms if you're going to start writing some of this stuff um or creating it yourself it's it's really hard to do okay what i'm trying to try to approach now is to say okay well we've got violence being talked about in a bad way i don't think the answer is to take violence out of everything i think uh really the duty of the artist is to uh, you know, show show truth rather than to show accuracy. But well, what is the truth about violence? What what is it that we want to say about violence? So, not to avoid talking about it, but to talk about it in accurate um, terms, and to say, well, look, we need to show what violence really is and what the real consequences of violence can be. And uh, that's actually kind of the starting point for the fantasy trilogy I wrote, which was that. Um, it kind of tried to pick up after a lot of fantasy stories end about killing the bad guy and kind of did a follow on from that. So in the first book, you see, you know, these kids on a quest and uh, spoiler alert, they do kill the bad guy, but that doesn't solve their problems. The, the whole next uh, two books and the rest of that one is about trying to solve the problems that arose from trying to kill the bad guy. That, so my reaction is not to say, okay, well, look, you know, I'm not going to do any violent work at all, but it's trying to kind of do a little bit of course correction and say, well, look, you know, we, we've all seen the stories where the bad guy gets killed. We haven't really seen a lot of what happens afterwards. So let's try to look into that a little bit. And there, there are filmmakers who depict that accurately, I think. Um, and, you know, this is uh, maybe a little preview for uh, the talk that we're going to have afterwards um, where we talk, you know, we go a little bit more into depth about some actual filmmakers to use violence uh, a lot in their, their craft. But the Coen brothers, I think often show, um, show violence responsibly and they show whenever they show violence, uh, it is seen as destructive and something that really takes um, the story in a different turn. Um, And they, they rarely show violence as being the the solution to something, but they show it as being a real complication in in a situation. I I think that that's another way of of looking at it. So we can look at violence as a whole. We can look at redemptive violence. We can also look at realistic violence. Um, And then uh, I think it's also interesting to look at the Marvel movies. We can uh, dip into that a little bit. And also the DC movies in contrast, because I think this is what DC doesn't get that Marvel does get. And it is more of a, a storytelling mechanism in saying, okay, look, We've got superheroes. They're going to fight. That's just kind of the nature of the genre, really, is, is you know, a lot of violence um, and fantasy violence. But the Marvel movies uh, rarely... The violence will be present at the end conflict, but often it'll hinge on the hero having to uh, sacrifice maybe himself, but sacrifice something meaningful to himself or to 
really put himself at a, at a disadvantage. And again, it's a bit of the kenosis thing. Um, I think that's used as a cop-out, and we can talk about that again after this. The, the best example I can see, and actually this isn't a Marvel Studios movie, although it is a Spider-Man movie. It's uh, the second Spider-Man movie with uh, Tobey Maguire and Dr. Octopus in it. Um, that, to me, is one of my favorite uh, superhero endings. I just, um, because... I just watched that one recently with my kids, so that's good. Well, you, okay, you go ahead and tell, tell us what... I, I'm getting tired of my own voice. You tell us what happens in, at the end, how, how they're able... So, okay, Dr. Octopus has created this little son in his lab and it's about to destroy New York. Yeah, it's it's almost like I don't know I don't know how to describe it. It's one of those you know crazy machines that v- supervillains always create. You know, it's, it's it's like sucking everything into itself. It's gonna it's like this big power hub. And I, I, here, here's what I remember: that essentially Doctor Ock sacrificed himself into the machine as as it, it it's it's like again. I, I think what I like about the, that original Spider-Man trilogy is how it approaches the villains. There's, they are not just villains that we hate, that there's always this kind of Jekyll and Hyde version of these villains where they, like every now and then they, they come back where they're like, they, the, the, the real person emerges and they're like, what have I done? Type of, type of realization. And so Dr. Ock has this realization and we, we end up kind of feeling sorry for him. And, he, and, and we go like, and so he, we realize I don't know. See, here's what I don't know what to do. Like, was he a was he a Jesus figure in the sense like where he laid down his life after having realized his own sin, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 utter havoc he had caused, the tragedy of that. Does it is there redemption in the fact that he laid down his life? It's it's certainly better than just Spider Man killing him. That's true. Okay. Well. Okay. Let me direct you a little bit more on this question. So. Uh, Dr. Octopus is the bad guy. We rarely uh, identify with the bad guys. Right. Uh, what did you see the hero doing at, at that end to get the Dr. Octopus into that situation? Oh, I can't remember. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you the answer. So, yeah, this is my favorite one because um, it doesn't uh, have to do with uh, hitting someone in the head so many times, okay? So what uh, Spider-Man is able to do at the end is connect to the villain on a on a human personal level you know all of his spider powers and agility and his strengths go into not hitting him in the face but to get close enough to him that he's looking him in the eye he takes off his mask and he shows who he is and he makes a connection he's, ah peter parker brilliant but lazy and he appeals to the bat to the villain's humanity and he says to him you're the only one who can stop this you know you've you've got to do something here. And he, the, he makes the bad guy realize, yes, that's right. I've created this situation. I'm the only one that can stop that. Even if it means, you know, destroying myself in the process, I need to do what's right. I mean, to me, that's perfect. That's poetry. It's, it's beautiful. We don't see that a lot in our day-to-day lives, but you know, if you have a conflict with, you know, your boss at work, you know, what, what model of conflict resolution are you going to use? You know, are you going to say, well, you know what, if I kill him, all of my problems are going to go away if I just kill my boss. <laughs> or are you going to say, you know what, he's, my boss is a jerk. He's making my life hell. He's going to destroy me. Why don't I try to relate to him on a more human level and see if we can have him change his behavior that will stop me, you know, from wanting to kill myself. Um, and so this is what, you know, even Spider-Man too can, can show us about, you know, ourselves um, and how to interact with each other. That kind of echoes on in a lot of the other superhero movies, you know, you'll have Iron Man, you know, often trying, you know, in the first Avengers movie, he flies the bomb through the wormhole and, you know, with no expectation of, of cover coming back, but he's able to eventually anyway. And we can just kind of go down the list where, whereas in the sort of DC, what DC gets wrong is it's all about domination and the conflicts you know, between Batman and Superman is, well, who's going to dominate in this? Well, it doesn't really matter anyway, because there's a big bad guy. Well, we have to dominate over this gray pixelated uh, villain um, who all seem kind of interchangeable. And so even when we're talking about violence as a resolution, we can still use violence, but then try to speak truly about it I think yeah i think maybe what i'm curious about um i'll i'll throw star wars into the mix too because um i've been watching with my kids uh the clone wars and you yeah. know th- talk about Love the clone wars talk about a long saga right so then in this sense we get it parsed out uh all these little individual episodes 
I think I, I I love what you're saying. I think what you're doing is offering us another way to he- see all these uh, superhero stories. I think maybe what I would say is, uh, at least within the the the, tr- the Christian tradition, these uh, m- most of these stories are a continual argument for just war theory. In okay. in the sense of like 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 the Clone Wars, uh, the Jedi mm-hmm. are always forced with hey, our ways are peaceful. We, we are not here to execute people. We are here to me- simply defend uh, helpless people. Uh, we're, we're, here to, we're here to restore peace to the galaxy type of, type of idea. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, at the end of every episode, when they use violence, they're always saying, I mean, I mean it'd be fun to find a, a, if there's a, an alternate, if they have an alternate ending, but it's always the, <laughs> yeah, we did what we had to do. We, uh, we used violence because it was necessary in this moment. I'm curious what you have to say to, to that. I mean, how do how do we even do a, a fantasy, a superhero tale, uh, without at least giving into just war theory? Uh, what, what do you, I don't know. I'm curious mm-hmm. what you might have to say to that. I'm uncomfortable with it. I, I think uh, that again, it's a bit of a cop out, and it actually it kind of shows that well, we tried these other ideas, and really, killing was the best way to get through it. Uh, the the thing about the Clone Wars, and they're they're noted they're cognizant of this while they're making them is that it's a fake war. You know, they don't know it, but we know it. We know that this is generated by the evil emperor in order to get power. Um, and it's going to happen, you know, later on. And actually as the clone wars, the cartoon series continues, you get to see that as well. And all the people who you thought were good guys are actually bad guys. And so there is that reversal. So within the context of them doing their little petty squabbles, you, you realize that they are petty and that they will not affect the outcome and that they are perpetuating um, the ability for the emperor to get more and more power throughout the series. So, um, yeah, it's, it is fun to kind of take, well, okay, this is a 30 minute episode. This is saying that violence is going to solve the solution. You can also say, well, look, this is a, I don't know what 19 hour epic that includes, you know, three live action movies as well. And it's saying that, you know, all the, the wars of the stars, the star wars, um, are leading up to, evil, you know, dominating over good eventually um, through, through the use of continued violence. You know, it's pitting both sides against each other because you do have the chancellor who's in charge of the Republic and he's also in charge of the separatists. You know, you know, they both answer to him. Yeah, I like that. I like uh, th- this actually relates more to the Cohen brothers than people might realize, which is mm-hmm. just the absurdity of violence itself. Like uh, uh, we yep. don't know the outcomes. And so here we have this long epic and we're we're engrossed in like oh who's going to win the war and who's and really it's mm-hmm. just this uh, uh, f- a futile endeavor the whole thing is like absurd because there's this it is but it's not a joke you know they're not treating it lightly and they're not saying well you know it's all it's all kind of abstract I mean because what we're really focusing on is the soul of Anakin Skywalker you know what how does this affect him uh, and that's what George Lucas originally wanted to show um, is the, the downfall of this one person um, and it is through the use of being manipulated to, to create violence, you know, um, the women, the children. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And if this is art, you know, it doesn't have to have a conclusion. Um, it can just kind of keep the conversation going. OK, so I, I want to hear about more about uh, narratives that, that you think are redeeming the myth of redemptive violence. But I'm curious, is there anything that we missed so far? The one th- one thing we miss is uh, kind of the fake out. And we can talk about this very shortly. Um, the best example I can see is um, uh, the movie Gran Turismo, which was kind of popular for a little while. Uh, I think also The Last Jedi, we can talk about a more recent one. So it's showing a whole lot of violence, and then it's showing an act of nonviolence to try to redeem things. I don't know if you remember the movie Gran Turismo, but no. it's a, a Clint Eastwood-directed movie where um, an old man... Oh, Gran, uh, takes- Gran Torino. Torino. Yeah. What did I say? Turismo? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Gran Torino. I'm sorry. That's, okay. yeah. I have seen <laughs> That's a racing thing. Is it a car? Or... Okay. Yeah, sorry. Gran, I don't know. Gran about Turismo but... is a video game. It's funny. I, I don't know a anything about these things. But yeah, Gran Torino. Okay. That's, that's the Clint Eastwood movie. Yep. Yeah, the Clint Eastwood movie. I've seen okay. it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, is that yeah, at the end, he makes, he, you know, he allows himself to be shot by a gang so that the police can come. And I guess they've shot a white guy now, so they're all going to go to jail. But he makes them think that he's going to reach in his pocket for a gun to start shooting people. Um, but he doesn't. He's reaching for a lighter or a cigarette or something like that. Um, and it's like, oh, he did this, uh, he did this act of self-sacrifice, and now things are going to be better. And in The Last Jedi, we saw you know, uh, Luke Skywalker fight um, the bad guy. Uh, what's his name? I'm losing all my Star Wars knowledge. Um, Kylo Ren. 
Kylo Ren. And uh, it turns out that he wasn't actually there. He was a forced projection uh, of himself and uh, gave the rebels enough time to escape or whatever. Um, and he sacrificed himself, you know, to, to do that. On the other hand, um, the only reason that Luke Skywalker and Clint Eastwood are able to do this in this movie is that they have shown themselves to be such violent threats to the bad guys. They've killed so many or, you know, they've been so unpleasant, <laughs> really, um, that just their presence is a threat to these people. And so it's the expectation of violence that um, is still present in the nonviolent acts. So just the fact that Clint Eastwood you know, got shot is because they thought he was going to do acts of terrible violence on them. And so that's not really a nonviolent ending. That's violence still being present, even though it's not kind of depicted. Um, so I think that's something, uh, that's also something to kind of look out for because I, I, I did hear people um, in a Christian context kind of say, oh yeah, this is, you know, it's a, you know, even when he's on the ground, you know, he spreads his arms out and it's very Christ-like. And it's like, well, that's not Christ-like. You know, Christ didn't, you know, come around, start killing Romans and then allow himself to be killed by Romans. That's, that's the, you know, the complete opposite um, of kind of what he was all about. So I think it's worth uh, hitting that point. But yeah, we can uh, bounce into kind of a, a different, I don't want to say structure or model, but, you know, different mechanisms really for, for tying up a story, um, which again are going to be more nuanced and complex, but I think that's only because, you know, the violence is so present with us. Any alternative seems nuanced and complex um, in context of that. But uh, even going back uh, in history, there is um, a theory called the great goddess theory, um, which says that a lot of the myths that we have uh, in recorded history, and this is talking about Greek and Norse myths and, and the rest, are actually kind of rewritten uh, from a male dominant perspective. Um, and there is, uh, although there's not a historical evidence for it, there is archaeological evidence for the fact that past societies may have been more matriarchal, may have been more communal than we're given to believe based on what uh, we have written. And there are even, um, uh, especially uh, Greek writers, who we know were misogynists and anti-women, um, who, were, who were writing some of these, these myths. And this isn't some sort of modernist woke uh, theory. This actually goes back to the 1850s, um, where society wasn't uh, disposed to giving women power, for sure. Uh, the kind of pointed out was like, look, we've got all these kind of carvings um, of women. Um, is this the kind of the the more kind of bloated women, the sort of the you know like a fertility goddess kind of thing, saying like, look, these are everywhere. You know, this is in Greece, Mesopotamia, a lot of places, um, and sort of saying is like, look, there is a case to create a model for saying that society was more female focused than male focused, but at some point. Um, in the development of these civilizations, uh, men came more into power for whatever reason, and then started to perpetrate their own kind of propaganda by rewriting the myths. And they can say, well, look, you know, there are certain uh, goddesses who have power, but they're treated very badly, <laughs> or they're editorialized um, within the story, but you can kind of see the echoes of how they could have fit um, in a more powerful aspect within those stories, for instance. And that gives, I mean, this would be a whole nother thing on itself. Um, but that's to say that um, it does seem like uh, the myth of redemptive violence is a very, does perpetuate male dominance in society. I really have to give examples of that. We can just go through any Hollywood movie and say, yeah, there's a male hitting somebody else. There's a male hitting somebody else. Whereas uh, people have uh, started to kind of say, it's like, look, it is male to be violent and to think that violence is going to solve an answer. Um, there are other aspects of the feminine. I mean, we're getting into stereotypes and maybe even essentialism here as well, which I don't really want to, I mean, it's a hornet's nest. But I mean, it's to say that like the idea for a, a male throughout society is to go out, forge your own way, provide for your family, hunter-gatherer kind of stuff, um, and to dominate your circumstances in order to provide for your family. Um, females have been very much more communally minded. So the, the way to approach conflict uh, within a kind of female myth narrative, and we can see this in a, even books like you know, The Scarlet Letter. Um, there's a mythologist who I... Um, that of course with who drew that distinction is like, you know, this is um, something when you start to talk about what a woman's role is in like an adventure story, even um, you, you find that you, you don't just put a pair of pants on a woman and just give her a sword and say, okay, well, this is, you know, a female character now. Um, they, they do have a different role and it's, it is more communally minded. It's about um, 
relationships uh, between uh, people and restoring relationships. It's about nurturing more than conquering. Um, and it's more kind of about, well, the men are all off fighting the wars. What's the woman's role in trying to keep society alive and thriving and to, um, to create and grow something rather than to just take something over from somebody else? Um, so this has been with us, but it's been overwritten, perhaps, is the, the thesis. And there are stories that, you know, throughout the age, which are written by women about women. And you can look at someone like Jane Austen, you know, it's not about dominance. It's about restoring relationships. Um, uh, women are great mystery writers. Uh, it's, you know, you have an act of violence, but then you have a restoration about that as well. You know, there are lots of great famous uh, women mystery writers, as many as men. But, you know, it's, um, it's a genre that has... Uh, um, has allowed women more than, say, science fiction or something like that. Um, so, yeah, there's that. There's also, um, I, I also have done a lot of reading of Ursula K. Le Guin, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but she has written um, about her own craft. She's, uh, she's one of those writers who can actually write intelligibly on her own work, <laughs> which is rare for writers. Uh, we don't always know what we do. It's, it's it, well, well any, any art is mostly instinctive. Um, but uh, yeah, she's able to kind of look at her own and uh, the other genres and stuff like that. And she, she's drawn attention to the facts. And this got me on, uh, you know, on these tracks as well, is that not all conflict is violent or even a, you know, about domination. Some of it is just kind of misunderstanding or it's about a broken relationship that needs to be fixed. Um, there are different um, conflicts or different ways of talking about conflict that don't even have to hinge on domination. Um, they can hinge on, you know, not creating something, but just, you know, helping something to live and survive uh, about fixing something rather than, like I say, conquering or, or taking it away from someone else, which is what you see in Star Wars. You know, it's like, okay, you've got this big toy. Okay, I'm going to blow it up. Okay, you've got this. Okay, we're going to take that away from you. Okay, well, you're being a bad guy. You know, we're going to kill you. Um, so, yeah, and that's, and again, we can, we have to look into other, other genres, other ways of telling stories and say, okay, uh, comedies and romances, uh, even rom-coms rom are, you know, they're not violent. Often they're not about dominance either. Um, sometimes they are. I, I think the TV show Friends, uh, I, I found that very hard to watch uh, when it was popular even, and I didn't really know why uh, until years later. It, but it was, um, it was very, it, well, I mean, yeah, dominance is what I kind of think of it now. They're always uh, making fun of each other. Uh, it wasn't a, a comedy about, you know, trying to solve a situation as a group. It was all about, well, Ross is an idiot and Joey's stupid and, you know, Chandler's being weird and all this kind of stuff. It was more about kind of... Chandler, was, Chandler always made fun of people. Like that was yeah, yeah exclusively. Was and he lent more and more into it. The writers lent more and more into it as it went on. And so I would always come away, like you, you have a couple laughs and stuff, but for some reason for me, I just got turned off by it. Um, you, you know... It depends on the rom-com, but there is dominance in rom-coms. And if there is a lot of competition between who gets with who. So like with uh, Ross and Rachel, it was always this, you know, uh, horrible dilemma of are they with each other? And, and so in, in a strange way, there it, there can be dominance uh, and, and really a, dis, a disconcerting way. It's like, well, did they get the person that they're supposed to get? And, and in a way, like they, they, they conquer the kingdom of their romance <laughs> in mm -hmm. that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of hitched on who was right in the situation, you know, were they on a break or, or were they not? And that kind of thing. It's like, well, no relationship is going to last long if you're trying to keep track of who's right and who's wrong. Um, and then we can go talk about, uh, mysteries as well. Cause you, you know, it's a good point. It's like, does the detective dominate the bad guy? Or is it more about just kind of restoring a working order to the universe? Uh, yeah, I, I, I like um, I love mystery. I, I actually led a summer book club last year with uh, high schoolers on mystery novels, British mystery novels. And um, and uh, I think Poirot might be a good example in the sense of he presents the information and then guess what he does? He just kind of steps back and lets it. He's like, you know what? I've made my case. He doesn't need to. I, I would. I would argue he doesn't need to dominate, but he's there 
to help restore some kind of order and justice to the situation. And then he bows out. He's like, I'm going to go garden now. You know? Yeah, <laughs> he's exactly. He's detached. And I, I think it's funny when they often come to adapt a lot of these stories, how they have to put some sort of Hollywood ending into it. And if you saw the murder on the Orient Express, the Kenneth Branagh one recently, uh, they had some sort of action sequence on a train where uh, somebody had to get probably get shot or something like that, which isn't in the book itself, but they, <laughs> they have to you know, create it for the market and that people want the bad guy to get shot at the end. I don't know if the bad guy gets shot at the end, so this may not be a spoiler, but they often have to you know, tweak things a little bit because um, it's of some sort of uh, yeah, expectation of the market. But um, yeah, so um, I don't know. There's some loose thoughts. What do you think about that? I guess wrap things up by telling us some of your own hopes like you're pointing to great examples. Like, and it's almost like this, I was joking with you when we were emailing back and forth with each other, because this, this is a podcast and you, you did have a podcast. I don't know exactly all the things you went into in your own podcast, but, but trying to imagine what stories can become in society as a whole, like that could be a whole podcast and we could just keep talking about it. But I don't know, tell me some of your own dreams and hopes. You, you've given us some of, some of that already, but. Okay. Uh, well, I, um, I won't. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the role of the artist. I'll step back and say, I don't need to give any uh, conclusions to this. But I, I will say that um, there, there is good story to, to look for. Um, and it's, it's always been with us. And we've talked about mysteries. I love mysteries, too. Um, but I can I will give you a list uh, that I've made of uh movies that do not hinge on violence being the answer. Uh, the, the ones that I am most passionate about at the moment are uh, the cartoons uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender, and then the follow-on series, The Legend of Korra, which are uh, fantastic. Um, it's, it's more about, uh, they talk continually about balance and things being out of balance. And the whole mission of the main character is to restore balance. You know, It's not about trying to assert domination. It's about trying to maintain you know, the kind of power structure that's going to serve everybody without saying, okay, this one has to be in charge. Um, uh, Doctor Who uh, is often kind of like a mystery, um, but he's a famously nonviolent uh, hero. If people want to kind of study um, the, the old vintage ones or even the, the newer ones, try to shoehorn in a little bit of Hollywood uh, violence for the American market. Um, so a little bit less satisfying in that respect. Uh, most Pixar movies, Quite honestly, um, even the ones you wouldn't really think of, um, that very few of those hinge on dominance. Um, and even the first Pixar movie, Toy Story, is about, well, you've got this cowboy and this space ranger. It's like, well, which one is the, the best toy? You know, which one's the, you know, does Andy love most? And it's about trying to find uh, equilibrium, a balance uh, within that kind of structure. Um, the Cars movies, which I hate. I hate the Cars movies. My children watch them all the time. But I have noticed that um, it's <laughs> the main character very rarely wins a race, on screen at least. He's supposed to be this famous race car, but he, he always loses. Um, have you seen Cars 3? Have you seen Cars 3? I have, yeah. That, that Again, one I hate I that with a passion, but I do that? appreciate. Um, Why do you hate Cars 3? Why do you hate Cars 3? Well, because the ending is very contrived. They've, they've really kind of gone out of their way. Well, it's, okay, spoiler for Cars 3. But he starts the race at the end, uh, and then he decides, oh, wait, I'm going to let this other car finish the race for me. And it's like, okay, well, that's a sweet sentiment, but it's like, who allows that in a race? It's the, it's the logical uh, gap that, that gets me. It's like, and then they say, oh, yeah, it doesn't say that a, a, the car has to finish the race, just the number has to finish the race. And, well, that's insane then, you know, then... The, the next race is just going to be all about you get, okay, then you buy five cars and you just have them, you know, cycle through the race. So anyway, I, I get hung up on, on the technicality for that. But, I, so, okay. So I, I agree completely with okay. the, the plot, the plot logic. What I loved about it was a, we need each other mm. and, and B it's okay to let go and know when it's your time to stop. Sure. And so I, I love the, I love the moral of the story in that sense. So, oh, I do too. I, and that's, that's yeah, the only yeah. reason I bring it up. Um, <laughs> because that, that is a good thing to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can go down the line, Monsters Inc., uh, Nemo, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes they, they don't do it. I, I was very disappointed in, um, uh, up because it showed, uh, the bad guy having to die in order to, mm. to solve the dilemma that they are in. Um, but uh, I think many of the Studio Ghibli movies as well is more about kind of, yeah, restoring the, the moments or um, the status quo, I, I think, is the way we talk about it in the West. Um, 
let's see. There's uh, Disney movies are getting better. They they were. I mean, I say better, but they you know they used to be about um, you know vanquishing the sorceress that turns into a dragon at the end of Sleeping Beauty, or you know the the witch that gives the poison apple, uh, who's really the evil godmother in in Snow White. So they did kind of lean into the the violence solving those. But you look at something like uh, Coco or Moana is one that I really loved. Moana is here. Yeah, it's a very. I think we can offer this as a kind of a female um, type of mythology. It's about uh, restoring something instead of destroying something. Um, and I won't give away more than that because it is a very powerful ending, which um, <laughs> that's the first movie I actually cried at. Not not because of the ending, um, but because of what happens to the grandmother at the beginning. And I had just become a father and like, yeah, tears just came down my cheeks in the movie theater. And uh, <laughs> I, I had a moment. But um, yeah, then the other, we can, uh, we'll, when we talk about Patreon, we'll talk about actual filmmakers themselves um, because we can talk about Wes Anderson movies as well. Um, like basically no violence in them for a start, but then it is all about kind of relationships and um, more than kind of objects and materialism. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we can save the rest um, for, for later, but uh, yeah, those yeah. are some things to kind of get stuck into if you do want to start dividing up uh, your own kind of feelings about uh, violence in, in art. So Ross, thanks for getting us started today. I hope people's imaginations are sparked. <laughs> if, if anything, yeah, we're just, I, I love the, what you said at the end that it's about restoring. And, um, and it's also, there's, there's so much more to explore here. Like, does that mean it's more feminine? Are there, are they, can, you know, what's the challenge for men here in the sense of all the stories that men have told over the ages? And, uh, you know, maybe it's just time for men to let women tell more stories. I mean, it is I think most... it's time for men to step aside. It's also time for men to kind of embrace femininity as well, um, yeah. which we're seeing. I mean, not in a literal sense, although it can be, but um, just saying that, yeah, humans don't have to be, and I guess <laughs> because I, I've moved to Texas here, it is kind of, they, they're still uh, very much kind of, this is what a man does, this is what a woman does, this is how men are treated, this is how women are treated, and uh, it's it's not great. It, honestly, it's not solving any problems in society, but um, yeah, if we can... If we can, yeah, restore a Christian imagination or yeah, think in new ways about these same problems, um, then maybe we'll actually get somewhere on them. That's the hope. Thanks so much, Ross. We loved having you. And we'll check out more on, on our Patreon page. Thanks Blessings so much. to you. All right. You to further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10ththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.